And so they asked me, they really assigned me uh, what to speak to you on, and that's how to beat kids in a club and not leave marks. No. <laughs> no, they asked me to speak on the spiritual battle of reaching children. And I'd like you to go to Ephesians chapter 6, because it is a battle. When you go get involved into soul winning, you are getting involved in a very deep, deep spiritual battle. The Bible says people are either in the hands of Satan or the hands of Christ. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. So when you go to share the gospel, regardless of whether it's backyard clubs, whether it's in the schools or whatever, the purpose of going is to take young people and children out of the hands of the enemy and putting them in the hands of Christ. And if you think the enemy wants to lose any child in its hand, I'm telling you, that's not true. There's going to be a real battle. And are you prepared for the battle? Do you realize that you're in a real battle? Do you know what goes on every time you teach a club of any sort? Even in here, when I'm speaking, Satan is working the audience, and he's doing two things. He wants to blind your mind to truth, the Word of God says. The second thing is to steal the Word out of the heart. How many of you ever really taught clubs where you end up for an invitation to salvation? You ever done that? What happens when you start giving the invitation? Kids cough. <coughs> and somebody knocks something over, and it is like, what happened? You know, all through the lesson, they're right there. Now you come to the part of, of for them to make a commitment to Christ or whatever, and it's like, they're all demon-possessed. You know, they're moving, they're bumping, and it's just unbelievable. Then you get all through that, and they're all good again. Well, that's not by accident. And what we learned in CEF is that as one was giving the invitation and bringing the lesson to the purpose and the close, another was in the back praying against the enemy working the audience. And how this worked out so wonderfully in uh, Cincinnati or Chicago or someplace, they were doing an inner city club. I don't know if you've ever been with the inner city kids, but inner city kids are really bad. I mean, really have a terrible time. These kids are sexually abused, physically abused, awful. And this was a club of about 50 of these kids in the basement of a church. And they would just about tear the church apart. These kids were really, really struggling. And so this couple that was running this club decided that when the wife would come to the part of the invitation and so on, he would stand in the back and he would pray. And if he would see a kid starting to disturb, he would pray against whatever was stirring up that child. And the people in that church could not believe how quiet it was when they gave an invitation. They had never seen it before. But they realized, this couple realized, it was a battle. And so it is so neat, if you're doing any kind of work, for one of you to share and one to pray, that, that they'll get it, that, that, that Satan will not blind their minds to the truth you're sharing. And when they leave, sometimes it's just a, a seed sowing, right? You're just sowing seed. And, you know, you, you, I sowed some grass seed. And I went and looked two days later, nothing was there. So I scraped it off and sowed some more. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? Because it needs to be watered and so on, and it takes time. So maybe all you're doing is planting a seed. But you don't want Satan to rip that seed out when they leave. That it would be there. And then they go something else, somewhere else, hear something else, and they hear truth. Very few people ever accept Christ the first time they hear the truth. Do you know that? Very few. It's sort of a process. They hear a little here, hear a little there, and all of a sudden it makes sense, and they want to receive Christ as Savior. All right, so the enemy is working the crowd, but the enemy is also going to work on you. And God knew that we were in a spiritual battle, and the more you want to, to serve the Lord, 
the more you want to be used of God, the more you're going to become a target for the enemy. Years ago, there was a, a fellow that was saved by Billy Graham just two weeks before I was saved. And this fellow, his parents taught at a Bible college, but he was working for the police department and also the mafia in Los Angeles. And Billy Graham uh, had a, a film on his life and so on. He worked for Mickey Cohen. He would plant, uh, what do you call those things, those bugs? Yeah, I'm not talking about, you know, bugs, bugs, but the bugs that pick up phone calls. What do you call it? Yeah, but he, they stuck the, he stuck these things. He would go into the mafia's houses and plant these things so they're recording the conversation. The mafia would come and say, you understand this stuff, don't you? Yes. We will pay you so much money to take him out. So the police department paid him to put him there, and the mafia would pay him to take him out. And so he was working both with the police and the mafia and all of this. His name was Jim Voss. Anyway, when Jim Voss finally got his life right and got saved at a Billy Graham meeting, and Billy Graham said, it was his first meeting, there's a man here tonight, if he doesn't receive Christ as his Savior, this is his last chance. That's not Billy Graham's typical thing. And Jim Voss was at the very back, knew it was him. He walked forward and got saved. He was supposed to fly to St. Louis that night, and they were waiting in St. Louis, the mafia is waiting in St. Louis to kill him, put his feet in cement, and drop him in the Missouri River. And the mafia came to his house to kill him. And he walked outside. He knew they came to kill him. He was doing other stuff. Um, I, I can't go into this whole story. He was doing other stuff. Anyway, he walked out and shared his testimony with them. And they walked away and they didn't kill him. And it was amazing. And later on, he was able to witness many times to Mickey Cohen, who was running all of the mafia stuff in Los Angeles. But when Jim Voss got his life squared away, his mother said this, a godly woman. She said, Jim, never forget the devil loves a shining mark. And that was the book of his life, The Devil Loves a Shining Mark. And if you want, you just want to be a nothing of a Christian, then you don't have to worry too much about the enemy, do you? But if you really want to be used of God and you want to touch people's lives and you want to bring people from darkness to light, you became and you become a shining mark. And God has given us instructions in Ephesians chapter 6 of his protection for the spiritual battles that we're going to have when we're trying to take people out of darkness and help them get into the kingdom of light. So Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And the word might in the Greek is the ability to perform anything. God says you're entering a spiritual battle. You are going to fight demonic powers. And he said, realize that the victory does not lie in your strength. It lies in the Lord's strength. I could go through a lot of scriptures about Satan being defeated and all that. It's all in scriptures, Colossians, all of this. But to give you a living illustration of this, when I was at Child Evangelism Fellowship, I was traveling around speaking at Bible colleges all across America, and I was speaking at a Bible college, and the head resident assistant said, would you see my brother? I'm sure he's demonized. I said, yes, bring him out to the mission, and I'd be glad to see him. You could stay there. We had a building where you could stay free. It was like a motel uh, with about, I mean, a hotel, uh, motel, hotel kind of thing. You could stay there, and we have a dining room there and all of that, and you know, it won't cost you. Well, they were coming out on a Sunday, and I had gone to church in St. Louis, which is about an hour away, one way. We came back home, and I told my wife, I'm going to go out to the, uh, to the headquarters to see if, if uh, this, these fellows are there, because they won't know where to meet me on Monday. And I know some of, some of you or your parents have been to CEF working with the children thing there. And you know how huge the property is a square mile, so it's huge. So when I went, I just had a pair of old jeans on and an old shirt. And so the, there was one fellow I knew, but the other fellow I didn't know. When I knocked on the door, they said, come in. When I opened the door, if this would be a twin bed, the door opened against that end. So I'm standing there, and between me and the bed is a door, and the kid I knew was sitting on the bed. I couldn't see him. I'm just standing in the doorway. His brother was sitting, looking out at the lake. He whirled around and looked at me, and a voice spoke out of him and said, Logan, we're not afraid of you. I'm going, how'd this guy know it was Logan? You know, usually a vice president of a mission doesn't wear jeans and an old shirt. 
So I knew what was going on. He said, we're not afraid of you. So I went over and I sat down in the bed and I looked at this fellow and I said, why would you be afraid of me? And the voices said, we're not afraid of you. We want you to know it. And I thought, this is going to be quite a week. I'm just telling where to meet me and already we're having problems here. And I said, I want you to know this. I'm not here representing Jim Logan. I'm here representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And the voices said, we're afraid of him. See, do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know that? That's what he's saying here. It's not your strength. It's not, in the name of Jesus. You know, and sometimes you get on the TV, you think that's it, the powers in the voice, in the hand, whichever hand's supposed to be, I'm not sure. But you know, I mean, you see them do this, and this big name and everything. That's not what he's saying. What, what is he saying here? He says, the powers in the Lord, don't forget that. You're in a spiritual battle. God will empower you to have victory in this battle. The enemy you're meeting is already defeated. Did you know that? He was defeated 2,000 years ago when your salvation was paid for. So you're meeting a defeated enemy. He just doesn't want you to know he's defeated. So now he goes on and he says, all right, you're going out to the battle. You're going to snatch kids from darkness to light. He says, first of all, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of Satan. Satan is scheming to defeat you. Satan is scheming to keep that club or that class in darkness. Satan is scheming to keep those that do not know him from knowing Christ. This is what's going on. You're in a battle. And he said, the armor of God will protect you when you go in there. There's meaning. Now, it doesn't mean we're selling armor here. You know, we have whole sets for $200, and we take credit cards, you know, and uh, you get them in the hallway in a box. No, it's, it's not that. He took a soldier that everybody was aware of and said, I'm going to take how the soldier is dressed and show you how he goes to battle, what these things represent a representative of what we need to put on to go to battle too, in the spiritual realm, battling over the lives of children. And he goes on, and I want to read verse 13. We're skipping 12 for a reason. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. So you have in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand. You jump 12, go down to 13, take unto the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. But all of a sudden, there's a major change in verse 12 that's tremendously significant. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he said, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The key is we. He said, you put on the armor, you put on the armor, we wrestle. What's the difference? You will go to lunch, right? We will go to lunch. What did I do? I included me with you, didn't I? The greatest Christian that ever lived said he what? Wrestled demonic forces. If you think there's a certain time in your spiritual life that you're not going to have to deal with attacks of some way of the enemy in working with children or in your own life, let me tell you that is false. Because the greatest Christian that ever lived said he still wrestled or struggled. The word is really struggled in the Greek against demonic forces, the Apostle Paul. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting people. The enemy wants you to fight people. Now, I can tell you this. I've been involved in this kind of ministry for more years than you guys have lived. And I have never been hurt by a demon. And many of you know, medicine men have sent him in my room, and I have, people have tried to kill me in counseling and all this stuff, but they couldn't. Tried to strangle me, all this kind of stuff. If you know the stories, you've seen the videos. Because I'm in Christ, the wicked one touches me not. But I have been hurt more by people than I ever have by any demonic spirit. And what hurt me a lot, which I didn't believe, and I was telling Joy about this, I didn't believe this was happening. I've had people and pastors tell me when I was going out talking about CEF, going out, memor uh, going out trying to get this stuff, that we do not believe children under 12 could be saved. I said, Joy, I thought that went out in the dark ages. Can you imagine? Under 12 can't be saved. 
most kids are saved before they're 12. Do you know that? All of my four kids were saved before they were 12. I think the one that was saved the oldest was five and a half. And the one that was saved the youngest was four, our second born, and when I led her sister to Christ, we used this little, you know, what do you know, you put them in, you click, and you see stuff, click. And we had the Easter one, Jesus crucified, and they wanted to know what it was about. So I asked Cheryl, do you want to receive Jesus as Savior? And she could see it. She said, yes. So she, I led her to Christ, and her four-year-old sister says, me too. I'm going, oh, no, you don't get saved being a me too, you know? Uh, you know, where's the repentance? Where's the tears? I'm a sinner at four. <laughs> And so I led her to Christ, and I thought, did this work? You know, did it really work, a four-year-old? Well, she's the one that became a missionary. Probably didn't work, right? <laughs> she never doubted her salvation. You know? uh, so don't underestimate the power of the Spirit to reach a child if you make the gospel simple enough for them to understand. We usually complicate the gospel. And we get it so complicated. Well, in the Greek, four-year-old, this is what it really means. Like a four-year-old could care less about Greek, right? <laughs> or all of this stuff. You know, don't get complicated with a kid. Now, let's go on. He's saying, you're not fighting people. Your dad is not your enemy. Your mom is not your enemy. Maybe your demonized brother or your demonized sister, that's another issue, right? <clears throat> but he says, no, our battle, our struggle is not against people, but against principalities. What in the world is a principality? That's a category of demonic spirits. A principality is a prince, a palate is a geographical location, and it's a demon assigned to hold a territory in darkness. The Bible says the whole world lies in the wicked one. It says that Satan is the prince of the power of the ear, and he's assigned his, some of his spirits to hold the world in darkness, territorial spirits. They're all over. Sometimes you can sense them, sometimes you can't. Before I even believed demonic spirits were real, I was flying to Molokai to counsel some missionaries that are struggling. Molokai is an island, uh, uh, one of the Hawaiian islands, and I was flying from Maui to Molokai. I love Maui, even though it's probably the most new ages, new agey of all of the Hawaiian islands. You know, a lot of new age stuff going on there. But when I got off the airplane at Molokai, the airport's really cute, you know, orchids and all this, real small. I got off the airplane, the missionaries are standing there, and I did the hoof and mouth thing, you know, where you put your hoof in your mouth. And uh, I said, how can you guys stand to live here? Well, that's not the best thing to say to people that just met you getting off a little airplane. And I just had the creepy feeling. And they said, what? I said, I don't know. I just feel really yucky. And I, I mean, I've been to Africa. I've been all over, but I've never felt so yucky as I did in Molokai. And the wife said, well, praise the Lord. She said, you know, I feel the same way here. She said, I have to go into the hotel, and there's only one hotel on the beach where you can swim. In Hawaii, any beach that you can swim on, you know, there's two sides to an island, you know that? One where the waves crash and you do the windsurfing. The other side is where the tourists are in their bikinis. And, you know, you don't want to go on the tourist side. It's really bad. You go on the Hawaiian side, it's great, you know, where the Hawaiians go. But you go to any Hawaiian island where the waves are nice, the hotels are so close together that the sun doesn't even shine between them. You know, they cast shadows on each other. Molokai has one, just one. Why? Because everybody that goes does what? Mm. You just get this creepy feeling. This missionary's wife, if she didn't fly off that island once a month and shop on the big island, she couldn't stand to be there because it was so oppressive. It was like there was a dark fog over that place. It, that place was so bad that the mayor or governor of Molokai at that time was a transvestite. The high schools had bathrooms for those who were perverted and those who weren't perverted. Talk about darkness. You could cut it with an axe, even though the sun's shining. You know what I'm saying? It was just oppressive. Why? There was a territorial spirit over that thing, and I was sensing its oppressiveness. Missionaries can sense that in various parts of the world, some places stronger or stronger than others. 
Now, the second one, so, so you're going out to reach kids, and I don't care where you go, there is a principality somewhere over it. Before this thing starts, Knoxville, every year, I've been here, every year that Knoxville's been here, and I've been before. You know what happens before this thing starts? Bill Gothard, the board, and myself get on our knees, and we bind the powers and principalities over this place. A few years ago, I walked into the auditorium. The second one's powers. I walked in, you know, the auditorium, TBA, whatever it's called, TBS, or some, I don't know, which, you know the thing I'm talking about, the bigger one. I walked in there and I'm going, ugh, I just feel dirty. The place is empty, you know, they're sweeping, this is early. And I'm going, you know, there's something really wrong in here. I don't know what it is. I mean, the empty, that empty arena, and you feel like, yuck. And uh, so I went to the guy and I said, you know, I just feel really, I don't know, I don't feel good. And he said, I said, who was here? Oh, he said, last week Guns N' Roses was in here. They had a rock thing in there. And I didn't know the rock thing there. I went in there and guess what? Some of the people not only left their trash, they left their demons. You know, let me tell you, a rock concert has all kinds of demonic stuff going on there, and it was still in the auditorium. Those are powers. Principalities are over areas. Powers are the ones that want to influence your personal behavior. They want power over you. And so if you go to an area where the people in that area are all empowered by the same power, you will feel it. In New York City, CEF was working in the inner city, and they were working with welfare kids in welfare hotels. And we went to a section of the city. I had a doctor and a businessman with me, hoping that they would give money to CEF, seeing how they were working with these kids. We're walking up the street, stepping on crack vials that were all over the place. The businessman turned to the doctor. I was behind him, and it was creepy, broad daylight. Well, you know where Times Square goes like this? We're walking up the side of Times Square, up the street. I think it's 40 seconds, 70 seconds, something or other, some kind of second street that goes up that way. And we're walking up, and the businessman, who had part of his hand gone, turned to the doctor and said, I have fear. After we just went right around the corner, I have fear. And he said, the last time I felt like this, when I was in Vietnam, walking through the jungles. And you know why? That whole area, people live that were in the same bondage. And you could feel it. Some people can't handle San Francisco. They just, people that have a sensitive spirit, there's something not good here, not right here. Some people can't stand Bourbon Street in, down in New Orleans. It is so evil. And they just sense the evil because the people there are all under the influence of the same kind of lewd spirit. And they sense that. So there are spirits that want to empower. You can have children come into your meeting that have a spirit on them. There have been kids here that, that were in trouble. They had spirits on them. So that can happen. That's why you should always minister by two. One to share, one to pray. One to share, one to pray. Okay, the third one are the rulers of the darkness of this world. These are spirits assigned to leaders. And then uh, against the spiritual wickedness in high places, and high places in the Bible are always places of religious experience. These are demons that promote religion. So they're demons that are holding territories in darkness all over the world. They're demonic spirits whose job is to attack me individually each one of us individually. They want to empower my life. And then there's demons that want to attack the leaders. That's why God says, pray for all in authority that we might live what? A quiet and a peaceable life because there's demons that want to influence Bush. They want to influence a congressman. They want to influence these men. And we have, for years, I spoke to congressmen and so on. Do you realize there are demons want to influence your decisions in Washington, D.C.? And they never got whatever. They listened and they believed it. Why not pass laws that extends darkness? No Bible in the school, no praying in the school. Why not do it this way rather than, you know, ah. So we're to pray, those kind of things. And then there's demons that promote anything that's false, all kinds of false religion. When I went to Rostov, Russia, I didn't know where Rostov was. I looked at it on a map. When I went there, spoke at the University of Rostov, way down by the Black Sea in Russia, I couldn't believe the university was full of New Age and New Age teaching. And you know what? New Agers do not have a headquarters and they do not have missionaries. 
It's amazing. The New Age has permeated Soviet Union more than the gospel. How is that? Yeah. Spirits promote this stuff. Okay, now, let's go on. Because of this, the verse 13 says, wherefore. Wherefore says, because there's spirits over where you are, because spirits want to influence your personal behavior, because spirits are trying to influence leaders, and spirits are trying to promote anything that's false. Because of this, what am I to do? Take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, or keep on standing. Now let's go back and look at this. He said, take unto you the whole armor of God, all of it. Why? Because you and I are going to have evil days, the Word of God says. And I read that, and I read it wrong. I read it because we're living in evil times. That's not what it's saying. Because everybody's lived in evil times. I mean, times have always been evil. Go back to when Jesus was there in the Roman Empire and all of that was going on. It was very evil. What is the evil day? It's the, a definite article in the Greek and, and in English. The evil day. What is your evil day? It's the day of violent temptations and attacks whenever they come to you with extraordinary strength and the desire to yield is strong. That is an evil day. And all of us are going to have them. In Mark 4, and I mean, in Matthew 4 and, and Luke 4, we have Jesus being tempted by the devil. And Luke 4, it said, Satan, after Jesus resisted him three times, it said, Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. Or he left him for a season in the King James. And Satan's opportune time to come and to attack you is your evil day. When you're most open to be defeated, most open to quit, most open to sin, most open to do whatever, he will wait and come and attack you. You are going to have an evil day. This is written to all believers, even those under 20. All of us are going to have evil days. And when we have the evil day, we're to keep on standing. After we've done all to stand, how do we keep on standing? We stand in the armor of God. We stand in God's protection. That's what he's saying here. So he says, what do we stand? Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. He says, put on the belt of truth. Truth can only be one of two things. Truth can be what I perceive is true or God's truth. That's all the truth there is. What I think is true or God's truth. We know it has to be what? God's truth. Why am I to put on God's truth? Who will I meet today? What will this protect me from? You say Satan, but what aspect of Satan? Satan is the father of what? Lies. If I know truth, and Jesus said the truth will what? Set you free, but then what will bind you? Lies. We just set a kid free today, just before I came over here. How old was he? 15-year-old kid. That was believing some stuff that wasn't true. And as long as he believed the lies, he could never be free. Right? I mean, how can you be free if you believe lies? I believed a lot of lies growing up. Had a lot of help believing lies because my family helped me believe them. You know, I was no good. I was dumb. You know, I was stupid. I'd never amount to anything. You know, they were visualizing achievements. So as I was growing up, I was dumb and stupid and didn't amount to anything. And I was so unhappy, most of you know, I tried to commit suicide at 15 and a half years of age. But I didn't do it. I couldn't do it right. I mean, I couldn't even commit suicide right. So I was really dumb and stupid and could do anything right. I couldn't even do that right. Thank God, right? <laughs> you know? <clears throat> but I, I know what it's like to feel inferior and all that stuff. That's all. That's, no one's inferior. Did, were you really aware of Johnny's wheelchair after you started talking? No. I flew into, I don't know if we're going to finish what I'm talking here. Buy my book and read it. But I flew into, um, and I'm not pushing my book. They may not even sell it here. I don't know. Um, but I flew into um, Hobart Harbor in Tasmania. And true to faction, when I fly overseas, no one meets me. So I fly in, 
and no one's there. And I'm sitting next to this lady from Scotland who flew from, uh, from um, uh, you know, where the bridge is and all that stuff. I think it's the capital of, of whatever, Australia, flew over. Anyway, I told her, no one's going to meet me. She says, well, you're pretty pessimistic. I said, honey, I travel all over the world. Wherever I get there, no one comes. And usually I don't have telephone numbers, you know, so I don't know who to call. So I'm in a foreign country, but at least in Australia they speak English, sort of. And uh, <clears throat> so I get off the plane, and the airport empties out, and I'm there by my lonesome. And so I'm figuring, I've got to have a phone call somewhere. I'm supposed to speak at a college here, and it's a CEF thing on this island. And finally, I found a number, and I dialed this number. And the guy answered, and he said, where are you? I said, well, your plane ticket took me. I didn't buy the ticket. I mean, I don't know Australia or, or anything. Why would I pick out somewhere to land? They said, well, they want, you're at the wrong end of the island. Said, oh, you're eight hours away. And he said, by the way, this phone was disconnected three weeks ago. They hadn't taken it out yet. It shouldn't be ringing. I was going out the door to fly to this other place. He said, the phone's ringing. He said, I better answer it. He said, just stay where you are, and someone will pick you up. And so they're calling all around this place to get somebody to take me in their house, because I travel with a lot of money, usually about 25 bucks, and that'll only usually pay a cab to get you from the airport somewhere. So uh, this lady comes. She picks me up, takes her to the house. It's a long story. I had a wonderful time, because they had a screwy teenager uh, in that house. But, Anyway, the next day, this lady is taking me, driving me the eight hours where I'm supposed to be, and this lady was telling me that in Australia, she had a burden for children. And Australia has children, they have those with mental illnesses or mental struggles in one category, those with physical struggles like Johnny and so on in another category where she ministers, and those have a combination, mental and physical. And she was sharing how she would teach these children, especially those in wheelchair. She would take the flannel figures and rub them on their face where the kids couldn't talk. This is Jesus. And she'd rub Jesus on them and put them on the board. And the kids would be drooling and so excited as she was putting these, them on her because they couldn't move and so on. And so she was saying that she was talking to the kids that were mentally okay but had physical handicaps. And there was a beautiful blonde girl in a wheelchair and she was doing the, the story that I love, the CF story, the one with the eyes. What, what's that story? You know, she, wanted, she had blue eyes, but wanted brown, I mean, she had brown eyes, wanted blue. Who is it? Yeah, that's Amy Carmichael. I gotta tell you, this is so good. They asked me to speak it in a wanna group, and it was hair night. And so I'm, you know, the kids have the hair all different ways. And I got up there, I'm doing the Amy Carmichael lesson. So I got up there before the kids, it was a big group like this. And I said, oh, I feel so bad. I wish I hadn't come. <laughs> Why? I said, it's hair night and I don't have any. <laughs> and I said, we like you anyway. <laughs> that was my introduction to Amy Carmichael wishing she was different. You know, and the kids really got it. I got them already thinking in terms of this whole thing. But anyway, she did the Amy Carmichael thing. And this, the, she said, do any of you hate anything? And the girl said, yes. A cute little blonde girl, I hate my wheelchair. I hate not being able to walk. People don't look at me, people like Johnny was talking about. I just hate it because I have a handicap. The teacher says, don't you realize that I have a handicap? And she said, no. And the teacher had, is, teaches on a crutch. With a, she had polio and she has a big brace up her leg. Can't miss it. But she was so glowing with Christ that the kids never noticed that she was on a crutch and limped. Isn't that neat? See, because you want people to notice what? Your handicap or your countenance? And when you looked at her, she just radiated Jesus. The kids never, the girl didn't even know. She said, oh, you are handicapped. She'd been teaching her for a long time. She never noticed it. Isn't that neat? Anyway, get back to our thing. Okay, Satan's a liar. And so I need truth. Because as soon as I hear this, because every attack of the enemy has a lie in it, to some degree. That's what he does, and he lies to me. Okay, the second thing is, put on the breastplate of righteousness. That righteousness is going to be one of two things. All the right things I do, or what we call doctrinally, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Christ giving me his righteousness. And we know what has to be right. His righteousness. 
It says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. When I gave my sins to Jesus, who knew no sin, he gave me his righteousness. Whether you guys know it or not, I am clothed in the Shekinah glory of God. And when we get to heaven, you'll see it. I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What is that to protect me from? Satan's attack, the accuser of the brethren. That's what the scripture says, Satan accuses the brethren. What makes you think you could teach a lesson, right? I'll tell you something, before you go teach a lesson somewhere, you know what you're gonna do? If you're not traveling in one of the teams, you're gonna have a fight with your mother. You are. Where's my thing? Mom, mom, I'm late, mother, I'm late. Can't you understand my priorities? I know you have 46 kids here, and you're the woman in the shoe. <laughs> but I mean, you get, all, you get all frustrated, you get there, and you're driving, and the Satan is saying, what makes you think you could teach a lesson, right? Huh. You know, they must be hard up if you're one of their teachers, right? <laughs> they must be scraping the barrel. He's the accuser. Satan had a lot to accuse me of. I didn't get saved till I was 20, and I did a lot of evil living. And when Satan reminds me of the evil living, you know what I tell him? He left stuff out. Now, I will not receive an accusation of Satan. Why? Because I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness, not my own. When he tries to point out a past failure, don't receive it. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. That's one of my protections, because against the accuser. And then the third thing we have with the first three, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What in the world is that? The sandals of peace for spiritual battle. What in the world is he talking about? Well, to really understand this third piece of the armor, we need to go to 2 Peter, or 1 Peter, or something. Um, go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse... 5 says this, 5-5, five, five. likewise, ye younger, submit to your elder. You know how old I am? You know how old you are? Believe this, practice this right in this group. <laughs> Yea, all of you be subject one to another, clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace, the desire, and the power to make right choices to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, he careth for you. This is, this is such a good one. I was, uh, where was, oh, I was flying down to speak to Whitecliffe Bible translators down in Guatemala at their translation centers. They come from all the Mayan villages and tribes and everything. And I was teaching the war, warfare to Whitecliffe missionaries, lots of them. And so I looked this up in the Greek before I went down. Casting all your care upon him, he careth for you. Care, careth, means matter of concern or object of his care. And I thought, isn't that neat? God cares. It's really neat. So I went down and I shared with them. And a guy that was, just had translated this in the Mayan dialect came to me and said, you know how I translated this for the Mayan Indians in, in my language group? I said, what? He said, what concerns you concerns God. Isn't that neat? Because what does the enemy tell you? God doesn't care. God doesn't care about you. You know, God cares so much about me that he knows the number of hairs on my head. Logan lost six this morning. Okay, six. <laughs> no, mine is six. <laughs> you know? I mean, he knows everything about us. You know what's amazing? He knows everything about us and he loves me anyway. Isn't that neat? And he cares. What concerns you is a concern to God. And one of the attacks of the enemy is God doesn't care. He doesn't even know you're around or whatever. Johnny went through that. Does God really care? Does God really know what's going on? When she was read her book and so on, when she was in the hospital and struggling through some of this stuff. And then he goes on and he said, be sober. Sober means to be cautious. Be vigilant means to be watchful. Why? Why am I to be uh, sober and vigilant? Why am I to be cautious and watchful? Because your adversary, the word adversary is there's someone who opposes you. Who opposes you? It is not evil with a D on it. It's not devil, it's the devil. Do you see that? 
You have an adversary. You have someone who's opposing you. Every time you want to do something for God, there's somebody who's going to try to oppose what you're going to do. That's what the Word of God says. And he opposes you as a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And the word devour in the Greek means to gulp down quickly. Now, I'm going to ask you guys something. Do you think God would put a warning in Scripture that was not true? Do you hear what he just said? He said, you have an enemy that wants to swallow you up. People will come to me and say, and I, they got fire in their eyes, do you believe that a Christian can be demon-possessed? Do you believe a Christian can have demons? I said, does that bother you? You know, smoke's coming out their ears. And <clears throat> I said, yes. I said, have you ever read this verse? And I quoted to him. I said, I don't really know what that verse means. But the verse here seems to say that Satan can swallow up believers. So my question is, can demons have Christians? Who in the Bible was swallowed up by something? Jonah. Now, I know God was behind all that thing, but it seemed like the fish was more in control than Jonah was. Now, I don't know what this means. I have 565 or 70 books on spiritual warfare in my library. None of them touch this verse. None of them. What do you say? It's a difficult verse, isn't it? Very, very difficult. But he says, resist him standing fast in the faith. Now, let me explain this. There's a girl here. Two girls came up to see me. One of them, I stayed in her house, and uh, she said she was glad I wasn't staying there anymore. And then the other one, uh, I knew her brother, who's real, he needs a lot of prayer right now. He's really backslid. Anyway, I can't see her. She's in here someplace. Anyway, her brother came to see me, and they lived in Texas, because I, under, I didn't understand. It says, Satan operates as a roaring lion. What in the world does that mean? And I had a backpacker come that year who told me this story, and her brother came and told me the same story, and her father was with her brother. And he said yes, because they lived close to where there was a thing. The backpacker said, as he loved to backpack, he was in Arizona somewhere, or New Mexico, and there was a sign by the Forest Service that was up that said, you are entering Puma territory. If you see a puma or a mountain lion, don't run. Stand still and see how tall you can be. Now, if you saw that sign and your folks are backpacking and they send you out to pick up, you know, some twigs and brush and stuff to have a fire, and you're out there picking it up, and you saw the sign, and you know that these animals are out there somewhere, and it's getting dark, and you think your folks are that way, and you start walking, and all of a sudden there's a crunch of a stick behind you, and another crunch, and all of a sudden you get those goosebumps up your neck, and there was a roar. What do you think you would do? Someone said, after I fainted? <laughs> Basically, instinctively, we would what? Run. And you say, I'll climb a tree. Guess who's up there with a knife and fork and a bib around him? <laughs> Waiting for you. You can't outrun them, and you can't outclimb them. But what was the thing that motivated your action? Fear. Wasn't it? Fear. Now, the girl that was here, that's here, her brother told me this, that they, they, have, they had cattle, and they were right by the state forest. And the forest ranger said, you know, in our area here, we do have pumas or mountain lions or whatever they call them in Texas, and said, if you see one, number one, don't run. Number two, put your hands over your head and look as tall as you can and make as much noise as possible and run towards the lion. <laughs> That's going too far. <laughs> It'd be hard enough to stand seeing that thing going. Mm, mm, I go. Rah. 
Now, what does that mean? Let's go back and let's look at this third piece of the armor um, in Ephesians 6. And he said, this last piece of the armor, the last piece of the first three, stand there for, pardon me, 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. God says, stand in peace and resist the roaring lion. Stand and resist. In the name of Jesus, leave. There he goes. <laughs> I hate people that hold awful signs in front of me. <laughs> now, see these first three pieces of the armor, we have, if you're a believer in here, you have these three things. You have truth, because Jesus is the person of truth. You have the Bible, it's the word of truth. You have the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of truth, that is to lead me in all truth. And the church, if you go to the right one, is called the pillar of truth. So I have truth. That is to resist the deceiver or the liar. I have righteousness, because when I see Christ, he gave me his what? Righteousness. And I am to stand in that and resist the accuser. And then, what did Jesus say? My peace I give unto you. My peace I leave unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be what? Afraid. There is a spirit that causes fear. God, and Peter says, there is a spirit that causes fear. But God's spirit gives you love, peace, and a sound mind. When you allow yourself to come under the influence of a spirit of fear, you will not make sound decisions. He said, stand in the peace. These three things are yours. And we're out of time. Uh, so uh, next year, we'll finish this. <laughs> and you get the second half. Because the second half says taking. The first three says having. The second half is taking. That means I have to use these. The first three, I just need to stand in that. Let me give you a quick story. Our pastor asked us to pray for someone in the neighborhood that didn't know the Lord, that God would give us an opportunity to witness. And I was praying for a single medical doctor right across the street from my house. And I've been praying for a number of months that somehow I would be able to witness to him. The opportunity came in a very strange way. I was in my parkway, you know, the sidewalk and then the, the grass and then the street. I was there pulling the weeds out, whatever I was doing. And this doctor drove down the hill, so he was driving down, and our, I said our driveways right across from each other, and I looked at him and he looked terrible. And I said, you look terrible. <laughs> And he said, oh, Jim, it's really bad. He said, I was rollerblading down at the river, Missouri River, and my dog had an epileptic seizure. And I've been with this dog all night long. And I'm going here down to the university, which was miles and miles and miles away, to the university vet hospital, because it's my only chance for my dog not to die. Now, he was a single doctor, and when you're single and have an animal, it means a lot more, because when he came home, the dog wagged his tail, rather than a wife wagging her tongue. You know what I mean? So, <clears throat> so he was <laughs> really excited about coming home. And so I'm praying, this is it, but God, I don't know what to do. How can I witness to him? I'm not sure how to do it. Anyway, so I'm praying and asking God for wisdom, and he pulls his car in, and he puts a bed down, he puts a dog in. I walked around, I looked at him, could I tell you something? And I told him, I said, you know, when I was in Guatemala, and I told the story, I said, you know, a fellow translated that verse, what concerns you concerns God. I said, are you concerned about your dog? Well, I mean, obviously, tears are running down his cheek. And he's a medical doctor, and I said, so is God concerned. I said, I'm going to pray that God is going to heal your dog. And so he hugged me, and he said, thanks for caring. 
and he drove off. And I said, God, if you let that dog die, I'm quitting. <laughs> you know? God, you, I've never prayed for a healing of a dog, but God, you got to heal that dog. And guess what? That dog was healed, and God bounded, bonded me and that young man, and I was not only able, he was a Christian, but you didn't know it. He rededicated his life to Christ. I was able to help him develop a prayer life and intimacy with God and all kinds of real neat things. So, you know, I'll tell you, there's a battle going on in there. And just be sensitive to the Spirit of God. Now, you can get my book or have your folks, maybe your folks got my book, and go through the other three pieces of the armor. They're, they're really quite different. But the first three you already have, you have truth, you have righteousness, and you have peace. Stand in it and resist him. Father, I thank you for these young people, and I know that they're going to be in a very real spiritual battle, that they're going to face the enemy when they try to snatch children out of the hand of Satan, to put them in your hand, Father. And I know, Father, when we go to battle, we don't need to go alone. And Father, I pray that they might learn to battle by twos, one sharing and one praying. And Father, I pray that this group of young people would be able to turn many children from darkness to light. And Father, those who have come to the light, that they would help them to grow deeper with you and to be stronger. And I just thank you for this group, Father. Bless them, use them mightily in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may they do great damage to Satan in his kingdom. Amen.